0: All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. So far in the book of Revelation, we've seen John's opening vision of Christ. That was chapter 1. And in chapters 2 and 3, we've seen Jesus' letters to the seven churches. And now in chapters 4 and 5, we have a throne room scene in heaven. This is a judicial scene. So if you enjoy court dramas or law novels or things like that, you'll know that entering the courtroom is usually presented as an intimidating thing. Sometimes the architecture of the court building itself emphasizes that. Maybe you think of, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court would be an example of that. And that's kind of the case here. And so today, Revelation 4 is going to be all about the setting. And you might think that would make for a very brief, you know, message, It's not. There is a lot here in this passage that we need to kind of unpack and unfold the symbolism of. So this morning we're going to look at John's description of the throne room in heaven. It's a judicial court setting as well as being God's place of rule. Chapter four gives us this description of the setting and then the action happens in chapter five. Okay so chapter four is the setting. Chapter five is the action. But let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, the book of Revelation is about Jesus' legal complaint against Israel because they rejected him as Messiah and killed him. There's lots of times in the Bible that God brings a lawsuit against his people. It's based on the covenant, the agreement that he's made with them as their king. And when they break the covenant, there are consequences for it. So let's start here this morning by setting the context. As we read the description of the throne room, John is calling to our minds the covenant and it's this, that being the context of what's about to happen in this throne room scene think about what happens at mount sinai when god gives his covenant law to his people exodus 19 verse 16 describes the scene at the mountain on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled well what do we have here in revelation 4 From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings or voices and peals of thunder. So the scene recalls to our mind the giving of the covenant. Another reminder of the covenant is the rainbow around the throne. In a few minutes, we'll talk about what this rainbow specifically represents. But the idea of a rainbow reminds us of Noah. After the flood, God put a rainbow in the heavens And made a covenant with Noah that he would not completely destroy the earth with a flood again. So the covenant, the the, the rainbow is a reminder of this covenant promise, of mercy, of God's wrath being limited, even in the middle of judgment, because of his covenant. In this vision, we have God on his throne, surrounded by heavenly beings. These heavenly beings are the divine council. In the Bible, we have angels or messengers and also some higher beings. Some are called by names like cherubim and seraphim and archangels. And here we have four living creatures who are around the throne and 24 elders who sit on thrones, also surrounding God's throne. John's language here, his descriptions are drawn from several different Old Testament scenes. For example, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a vision that God gave him. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed. Notice that that's plural. Thrones. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God, the Father, on his throne. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. The idea of the throne having wheels connects it to another Old Testament vision, that of Ezekiel. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's the divine counsel. Now in John's vision here in Revelation 4, he only tells us about 28 of them. There's 24 elders and there's four living creatures, but really there's thousands upon thousands and ten thousands. And the vision that we have is kind of simplified to help us understand what the things represent. And the court sat in judgment. Again, it's a judicial scene. It's God on his throne, but he's passing judgment. And the books were opened. And there's lots of other places in the Old Testament where we have a description of God with his divine counsel, these spirit beings who make up the heavenly court. And John's descriptions here can be traced to different Old Testament passages, but not just one passage. It's a mix. You know those recipes where it tells you to just barely mix the ingredients That's kind of what we have here. You know, you end up with a batter or a dough, but you can still kind of see some of the separate ingredients. John mixes descriptions from various Old Testament texts, but we can still identify, oh, this he got from Isaiah, and this he got from Ezekiel, and this he got from Exodus, and it's as if John has seen this vision, and it's the kind of thing, it's otherworldly, we don't have words for it. So he's taking what he saw and he's pulling language from the Old Testament to describe it for us so that we understand, at least in some sense, what it represents. I've been helped quite a bit in kind of unfolding some of that imagery by a lot of different commentators. One that was particularly helpful on Revelation 4 is a guy by the name of James Jordan. And so a lot of what I've been able to understand in this passage is with his help. But commentators have pointed out at least 14 different elements in the vision of Revelation 4 that come straight from Daniel chapter 7, all in exactly the same order. So Daniel 7 is kind of like the base that John is using, but then he pulls in things from lots of other places too, like Exodus and 1 Kings and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And there's also some unique new things that John adds too that we don't find anywhere else. And we'll look at some of that Old Testament background this morning, but not all of it, just for the sake of time. The basic idea of what we have in Revelation 4 is this description of the throne room in heaven. It sets the stage for the action that happens in chapter 5. But the setting in chapter 4 is really important. It has a lot to tell us. So let me give you a summary ahead of time of three things that I want you to see this morning as we look at this setting. The first the heavenly reality is what's most basic. We have in the Old Testament descriptions of the temple and the tabernacle and things like that, but we're always told that those things are based on a heavenly reality, a heavenly pattern. And I want you to understand that what John is describing here is the ultimate reality. Secondly, God is absolutely sovereign over time and history. He's presented as the one who's absolutely in control. Everything revolves around him. It's all his. John wants the believers he's writing to to know that because they're going to be facing difficult circumstances and you and I need to hear that today too. And third, the right response to what we see in this vision is worship. We worship God for who he is and for what he's done. In heaven, God is worshiped constantly. And on earth, we should be reflecting that as well. Well, what is God's throne room? It's a temple. It's the house of God. It's where God is worshipped. So as we read this description, we should expect to see some temple elements here. And there are. The main focus of this vision is God's throne turn with me to Exodus 25. I think this is probably the only place I'm going to have you turn other than Revelation 4 this morning. The The description, while you're turning there, the description that we have of the throne itself in Revelation 4, uh, the the gemstones that are mentioned, those are the gemstones of the royal tribes of Israel. So Benjamin and Judah, Saul was from Benjamin, David's from Judah, and then all the, the, the kings that are descended from David. So this is Royalty being signified here. This throne room that John sees is in heaven, but this throne room gets copied on earth. When God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, he showed him the heavenly reality that served as the pattern for the tabernacle. So in Exodus 25, look down at the end at verse 40. Exodus 25, verse 40. God says to Moses, See that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So the earthly tabernacle was a model, an imitation of the heavenly throne room. But earlier in the same chapter, look with me at verses 17 to 22, God gives the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, look at verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. He's already actually given the instructions for the ark. This now is the cover, the mercy seat that goes on top of the ark. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Okay, so that's a representation of the covenant. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God places himself on or above the mercy seat and from there speaks to Moses and to the people. So this is God on his throne meeting with his people. The cherubs are his throne guardians, part of his divine council of heavenly beings that attend the throne. And this is why the author of Hebrews, when he's describing Jesus' role as our high priest, can write this in chapter 8. And and by the way, we're done there in Exodus 25. You can go back to Revelation 4 and just camp there for the rest of the time. But this is Hebrews 8 now. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, this is clearly talking about the heavenly temple or tabernacle. And, and the author to Hebrews calls it the true tent. okay, The one the Lord set up, not man. It's the real thing, which the earthly tabernacle and temple were pictures of. The earthly ones, he says, were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. But notice, too, that instead of saying that Jesus is in the true tent, and seated on the mercy seat, he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The Bible authors understand that the Ark is the throne. It's where God is. It's where he rules from. But not only is the Ark a throne, it's also a chariot. Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 Make this very clear because the throne has chariot wheels. They're both passages that are in the background of what John is writing here in Revelation 4 as well. And when we finish with the tabernacle and it's time to build the temple, David is giving the instructions that Solomon is supposed to use to build the temple. Here's the instructions. Listen to how he speaks about the ark. 1 Chronicles 28, 18. We're told that David gave Solomon... His plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So the cover of the ark where the cherubim are is called the chariot. It's an ark, throne, chariot. It's all three of those things. So when we read in Revelation 4 about the throne of God, we should understand that this is a temple scene And John is speaking about the reality behind the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne chariot. So I want to put this up on the screen, an illustration that I'm just going to kind of build on this morning so you can follow along as we develop this vision that John describes. So this is the tabernacle. Okay, so in the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle, the tent itself is this part in the center and this is the courtyard that goes around. There's an entrance on the east side, and then there's an entrance into the holy place, and then there's an entrance into the holy of holies. Okay, so that's the basic diagram here of the tabernacle. Now we're going to kind of build on that as we go this morning. The Ark of the Covenant sits in the holy of holies, so we'll label that so that we can remember that that's what John's speaking of when he talks about the throne. And I'm going to take things a little bit out of order. And the reason for that is because once we identify some of the things that are more obvious, then the less obvious things fall into place a little easier. At the end of verse 5 in Revelation 4, John says that before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw earlier in the book that the seven spirits is just a way of speaking about the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit is symbolized here by seven burning torches of fire. So if the throne is the Ark of the Covenant, what do you think the seven burning torches are? Let's be interactive a little bit this morning. Yes, the lampstand. So here's the lampstand. Okay, and this is the the burning torches. This is more temple furniture. Now in verse 6... It says, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Now what piece of temple furniture would be like a sea of glass? Come on out in the courtyard. Can you think of it? It's even called a sea in the Old Testament. Yeah, the basin or the bronze this, the bronze laver or the bronze sea. Oop, there's my label. Okay, so here we go. The bronze sea. That's the sea of glass. First Kings, chapter seven, verse twenty-three. And I'm going to put a picture up here because this is the picture that I found that best represents what's described, although it's not perfect and it's a little grainy, but you get the idea. This is what Solomon did. First Kings seven twenty-three. He made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and five cubits high and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths." Now. I'm bouncing back and forth a little bit this morning between tabernacle and temple because they're essentially the same. Just sometimes things come out a little clearer in the temple or a little clearer in the tabernacle. But just so you understand, they're the same basic thing. The temple is just the permanent version of the tabernacle. Now in describing the Bronze Sea, it's made of metal, the thickness of your hand. It's 15 feet across, almost 50 feet around and it held about 12,000 gallons. Okay, so picture a a 15-foot swimming pool. Um, And it was seven and a half feet tall. So it's up above your head, right, where the surface of this water is. And it rested on the back of 12 bronze bulls that are facing outward. Now, what was the function of the sea in the tabernacle and the temple? Well, it symbolized cleansing, so you had to be clean or pure to enter God's throne room, and the priests used it to clean themselves before entering and serving. But there's another meaning here, too. The bronze sea also represents the firmament. On the second day of creation, God separated the waters below from the waters above, and he called the expanse heaven. So the firmament is the heavens, it's the the waters above. All right, now just follow the train of thought here through a couple different Bible texts. Job twenty-two fourteen tells us that God walks on the vault of heaven. So the waters above, that's the floor for God, so to speak. Again, this is all symbolism, but you get the idea. That's God's floor up there. Psalm 104, 1-3, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. All the language here is heavenly language. We have things like light and heavens and clouds and the wings of the wind. But look at the line in the middle. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. So if we're up there, we're talking about the waters above. And God lays the beams of his heavenly temple, so to speak, on the waters above. Exodus 24, 9 and 10. This is Mount Sinai. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They go up on Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. So when they go up into God's throne room, there is beneath them a clear blue pavement that's compared to the heavens and it's clear. It's as if God looks down through this firmament to see the things that are going on on earth and as the worshiper approaches the tabernacle we really should kind of be picturing it like ascending a mountain because God's throne is on the mountains so to speak scripturally and so we're we're on our way up heading up there. And as the worshiper on earth approaches the bronze sea, he's approaching waters that are above his head. Symbolically, if he wants to enter the throne room of God, he'll have to pass through or past the firmament, the waters above, because that's where God's throne room is according to scripture. So the bronze sea represents the waters above the firmament. And when you enter the temple by going past the bronze sea, it's like passing through the firmament and into the heavenly throne room of God, which is then what we find inside the tent, the heavenly throne room of God. Now, what about the 24 elders that we find in this passage? Well, in chapter 4 here, we see that they sit on thrones and they participate in worship. If you jumped ahead to chapter 5, verse 8, you would see that they have golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So which piece of temple furniture would the 24 elders be associated with if they have golden bowls full of incense? Anybody? Anybody? Not a trick question. They're associated with the altar of incense here. Okay, so this is the 24 elders. They are like the altar of incense and the priests who serve at the altar. That's what the 24 elders represent for us. So we have the throne, the Ark of the Covenant. We have the seven burning torches, which is the lampstand. We have the sea of glass or crystal, the bronze sea. We have the 24 elders, the altar of incense and the priests. Now let's check out the emerald rainbow. Now the word for rainbow, this takes a little explaining, the word for rainbow can mean a traditional rainbow, like we picture when we go outside in the rain and and the sun's shining and you see a multicolored rainbow. Or it can mean a halo, a full circle. We should probably here have both in mind. The rainbow recalls Noah and God's covenant promise to not completely destroy the earth with a flood. And since this is a judgment scene, the rainbow is a reminder of God's mercy. There's a rainbow around the throne in Ezekiel chapter one as well. Here, the emerald rainbow is encircling the throne. It goes the whole way around. And the fact that it's emerald is unique. Have you ever seen an emerald rainbow? No, rainbows are all multicolored. So there's something different. There's something unique about this one. Why is it emerald? Well, the emerald rainbow is the Levites. Might take a little explaining. So listen, the high priest wore gemstones on his breastplate that represented the 12 tribes. The gemstone for the tribe of Levi is the emerald. This rainbow is an emerald rainbow for a reason. It's not a normal rainbow. It's pointing to the tribe of Levi, and it's connected to the events at Mount Sinai. We've already had our attention drawn back to Mount Sinai a couple of times. Well, the the origin of the Levites with their particular role in the tabernacle and temple goes back to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, when Israel sinned by worshiping the golden calf, here's what happened. Exodus 32. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So Moses is at the entrance to the tabernacle. The text says he's in the gate of the camp. And when the Levites come, the text says that they gathered around him They form a protective ring around the tabernacle so as to prevent the defilement from the people who are in sin from coming into God's presence. The Levites were ordained for the service of the Lord because they protected the presence of the Lord from impure worshipers. They guard the throne or the ark from those who bring defilement into the worship of God. Our minds might go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned and had to leave the presence of God, what did God do? He put a guard at the entrance to his presence. Two cherubim, two throne guardians guarded the entrance. And what did they use? Flaming swords. The Levites here used their swords to guard the presence of God from defilement. And so when you get to the book of Numbers, Numbers describes their role this way. Numbers 1, verse 53. The Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. So notice a couple of things here. First, they camp around the tabernacle between the tabernacle, and the rest of the tribes. In other words, they form a protective ring around the tabernacle. They form a circle, a halo of protection. Second, note that they prevent God's wrath from going out to the people. How do they do that? By protecting the tabernacle from the defilement that would come from people coming in, sinful people coming in. So they prevent God's wrath. Like Noah's rainbow symbolized protection from God's wrath, the Levites symbolized protection from God's wrath. So the 12 tribes are arranged out here around the tabernacle, but the Levites and the priests form a ring between the tabernacle and the rest of the people. So the Levites here are the emerald rainbow, the ring of protection around the throne. So we have the ark, the lampstand, the bronze sea, the altar of incense, and the priests and the Levites. What are we missing? What are we missing out in the courtyard? No, what's out in the courtyard? We, We are missing the table of showbread. We'll get to that in a minute. But what's missing out in the courtyard? What's the other main? The altar, the bronze altar. Okay, so there's no altar in the heavenly vision. It's not there. Why would that be? Two reasons. First, the altar represents earth. Earth in the Bible is represented as having four corners. You've you heard that phrase, the four corners of the earth. And the bronze altar had four corners representing the earth. God's instructions for altars Before this one was that they were always supposed to be made of earth, of dirt, or of stones that were uncut. In other words, natural, earthly stones. And Exodus 20 tells us that the priests were prohibited from using stairs to get to the top of the altar. Now, this altar is four and a half feet high. You're not going to slaughter a bull and then lift it up onto the altar. So what were they going to do? They can't have stairs. What are they going to do? Well, they would have to build a ramp of earth, of dirt, to lead the animal up so that they could make this sacrifice. So the altar, even visually, as you look at it, it's going to look like a mountain, like a, a miniature mountain, like a miniature Mount Sinai. You have earth or dirt going up and then fire at the top, like you did at Mount Sinai. So the courtyard here has the earth and the firmament. And you would have to pass through that to get to the heavenly throne room of God. But the second reason is that the the altar only exists on earth, because that's where the sacrifices happened. There are no sacrifices made in heaven in God's presence. The need was on earth sin occurred on earth that's where jesus sacrifice was made on the cross outside of jerusalem on the earth hebrews 9 11 and 12 tells us but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So think, of th- think these through in detail with me. Jesus shed his blood on earth. When he went to the cross, he went as the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God. When he entered the heavenly temple, what role was he carrying out? What does Hebrews tell us? He's the high priest. Okay, so on earth, when he goes to the, to the place of sacrifice, he's going as the lamb. When he enters the heavenlies, he's going as the high priest. And so Hebrews 9 says he entered the heavenly temple as the high priest. He brought the shed blood that he had shed on earth to secure our redemption. But the sacrifice itself happened on earth. So, there's no bronze altar in the heavenly temple. There's no need for it. And then we said the other thing that's missing is the table of showbread. The table of bread would sit in the holy place opposite the lampstand, and the table held 12 loaves of bread along with a couple of flagons of wine. And the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes, the people of God. And you might remember from our study in Leviticus that the lamps on the lampstand were directed toward the table. They faced the table. The burning lamps that represented God's spirit were directed towards God's people so that the table of bread sat then in the presence of God. But in this vision, there's no table, no bread, no people of God. Why is that? Well, Remember what Revelation is about. Jesus has a legal complaint against Israel because they've rejected him and killed him. Since they've rejected God's Messiah, they're not here. They're not in God's presence. They're not in the throne room. How do you come into the throne room? By way of the altar. But they've rejected Jesus' sacrifice. They won't come by way of the altar sacrifice that God has provided in Jesus. They're sinful, and since they've rejected Jesus and his sacrifice, they can't come into God's presence. I won't say more about this for now, just tuck it away for later, but this is a problem that's going to have to get solved as the book continues to unfold. Let's turn our attention now to the four living creatures. I mentioned before that John kind of does a mashup of different Old Testament passages, and that's the case when we're looking at these four four living creatures. The four living creatures are throne guardians. They're heavenly beings. They're sometimes called cherubim or seraphim. They show up several different places in the Old Testament. When Ezekiel describes them in Ezekiel 1, they each have four faces. The faces of lion, ox, man, and eagle. Here in Revelation, each creature has one face, but it's the same four lion, ox, man, and eagle. Now in Ezekiel, they're also associated with the throne, with wheels. But in Ezekiel, it's the wheels that have eyes, rather than the creatures. When you get to Ezekiel 10, though, those same creatures are there in the vision again. But instead of being called living creatures, they're called cherubim. So Ezekiel even says this. He describes the cherubim, this is chapter 10, verse 15, and he says, and the cherubim mounted up, these were the living creatures that I saw. So the cherubim and the living creatures are one and the same. But in Ezekiel 10, the living creatures have four wings. And in Revelation 4, John says they have six wings. So where's he getting that? Well, that comes from Isaiah 6, Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God. And Isaiah calls them seraphim. So we've got cherubim, and seraphim, they're both words for throne guardians, but they're words that originate in different languages. So cherubim comes from Akkadian and seraphim comes from Egyptian. The I-M ending on those words, that's the Hebrew being added in. It makes it plural. Like if we would add the letter S on one of our words. So you have cherubs and seraphs that are throne guardians. Sometimes we have archangels thrown in there too. It's a variety of different terms, but they're all speaking about the same thing, these living creatures. So that's enough to make the point. John sees these creatures as the same, different visions, but all essentially the same thing. The living creatures are cherubim, they're seraphim, they're heavenly spirit beings who function as throne guardians, worshipers and servants of the one on the throne. Now, it will help us if we use the details of this text and things that come from some other texts in the Old Testament as well, to see where the creatures are facing. According to Ezekiel, they're always facing the same direction. So on the throne chariot, the wheels might turn 90 degrees. So the throne chariot can go forward and backward. It can go right and left. But the creatures are always facing the same direction, not the same as each other, But the direction that they're facing in, each one, they always stay facing that same direction. When this vision begins, John looks into the temple through an open door. Well, on our diagram here, the doors are on the east side. So we know John is facing west, he's facing the throne, and the first one that he sees would be the, the first one he describes, would be the one that's looking at him. And then he kind of goes clockwise, From there, he begins with this creature that's like a lion. So we have a lion on the west facing east. He continues clockwise around the tabernacle, and I'm assuming some things from some other passages as well, without taking the time to go there and look at all of it. The ox or bull is here on the north, facing south. The man is here on the east, facing west. And the eagle is here on the south, facing north. Now, if you're into astronomy, You might recognize what's going on here. The Zodiac is the 12 constellations that circle the night sky. Now today we're familiar with the Zodiac because of astrology. Astrology is not biblical. It's a distortion of God's design. The Zodiac is not to be used to try to divine individual fates or your your horoscope. But it is designed by God and it does represent the fabric of reality that God has designed the world with. He tells us that on day four of creation that the sun, moon, and stars are placed where they are for signs and for seasons. And God talks about specific constellations in scripture. Job 38, listen to what he says. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? So we recognize some of these constellations, Pleiades, Orion, the bear. We've got Ursa Major. What's Maseroth? Well, that word is a word for the set of constellations, particularly the zodiac. That's what God's talking about there. So here with these four living creatures, we have four points of the compass, four points of the zodiac. And I know this is kind of hard to see, but here you have Taurus, the bull. Here you have Aquarius, the man. Here you have Scorpio. Now here, Scorpio is represented as a scorpion or a serpent. That's the modern representation of it. In ancient times, it was often represented as an eagle. And here you have Leo, the lion. So what John sees, these living creatures, actually lines up with what we see in the night sky. If you are on earth, looking up at the firmament at night, you are symbolically looking up into the throne room of God. And to do that, you're looking at and beyond these constellations in the firmament. That's not the only layer of symbolism here, though. Archaeologists have also uncovered a number of Jewish synagogues with floor mosaics of the Zodiac. So this is a Jewish synagogue from about the 4th century, and this is not unusual. This happens quite a bit. Let me zoom in a little bit. So you have here the Zodiac. So for instance, here's Leo the Lion, and opposite is Aquarius the man, but up here you can see the menorahs, the, the lampstands, you see the Jewish imagery. The Jews were not afraid of this symbolism. Okay. In the Bible, the tribes of Israel are each identified with certain symbols, and these four living creatures line up with four of the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah is the lion. That's Genesis 49, nine. The tribe of Ephraim is the bull, Deuteronomy 33:17. 17. The tribe of Reuben is the man, unstable as water, Genesis 49:4. And the tribe of Dan is the eagle or the serpent. Remember that symbol has both there, Genesis 49, 17, and then also in Luke 10. When God gave instructions then for Israel for how they were supposed to camp, around the tabernacle in the wilderness here's what he said numbers 2 2 the people of israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father father's houses they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side so they camp all the way around the tabernacle and every tribe is facing the tabernacle so picture this we have 12 tribes around the tabernacle three on each side and they have a flag, a standard, that they put up. It's got a banner on it. In the text here, it was, call, it was, it was called a banner, but the word is literally sign. It's the same word from Genesis 1.14, that the stars are for signs. See the connection here? Numbers 2, 3, then... Those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah. So Judah camps over here. Numbers 210, on the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben. So Reuben camps down here on the south. Numbers 218, on the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim. So Ephraim is over there on the west. And Numbers 225, on the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan. So Dan is here on the north. And the idea is that each of the living creatures is facing the direction of where their tribal representative camps. Look, for example, at Judah. So we have Judah the lion, and the camp of Judah is over here. So the heavenly being in John's vision faces the location of its earthly counterpart. The living creature like a lion is on the west at the throne, constantly facing east where Judah the lion is camped. However... We have one problem. And this threw me for a loop this week for a while. You may notice that Reuben and Ephraim are inverted. According to the heavenly reality, the beasts in John's vision, and according to the constellations, if you were to line them up, Reuben and Ephraim should be switched. When God tells Moses where the tribes should camp, It seems like they got put in each other's places. Now, interpretively, you can either say, well, God got it wrong. Not a good option. Or you can say, maybe he's doing something on purpose. We have to ask, why? Why would God do that? And I think there's an answer, and it's this. The constellations, the the zodiac, reflect the heavenly reality, just like what John sees in his vision, In other words, the way things are in heaven and the way they should ideally be on earth. But in the Old Testament age, the age of Israel, the bull, the animal sacrifice, takes the place of man. The man should be entering the tabernacle and coming into God's presence to worship, but he can't because of sin. So, for the age of the old covenant, the age of Israel, the bull takes the place of man. The sacrifice stands in for the people. But, once Jesus, the true faithful man, dies on the cross, he goes into the heavenly temple as the high priest with the shed blood. He's the first man to enter and he opens the way for us. So now, the whole temple and sacrificial system is done away with. It's like it's picturing for us here, though, the story of what God does for us in Christ. Maybe just picture it this way. If the lion here starts at the throne, we know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So picture Jesus, who from all of eternity past is on the throne because he's God. What does he do in redemption? He comes down, say, through the firmament to the earth and becomes a man. He joins us. And then as the true and perfect man, what does he do? He sacrifices himself, ascends into heaven and offers the blood so that man can now come into the presence of God. I'm amazed as I look at these things because I think God has just written the entire story of what he's doing, the, the fabric of reality, into the way he's actually just created the world. I'll just mention one more way that you can see this. Think about the days of creation. What did God create on day one? Light. God created light. Which piece of temple furniture has to do with light? The lampstand. The lampstand. What did God create on days two and three? Day two is the firmament. Day three is the dry land. Firmament and the dry land. The bronze sea and the bronze altar. What did God create on day four? The sun, moon, and stars. Which peace has to do with sun, moon, and stars? Well, sun, moon, and stars are in the heavens where God's throne is, and they're associated with rulers as our thrones. This is the ark, throne. Josephus even tells us, by the way, as he recounts Israelite history for us, that he's describing what was on the veil here that hides the ark. And here's what he writes. He says, this curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens, excepting that of the 12 signs of the zodiac representing living creatures. So on the veil is woven into it the heavens themselves, except not including the creatures because you wouldn't put an image in the temple. You wouldn't put an image of an animal in the temple. So the constellations of the zodiac are not included, but other than that, it's a representation of the heavens. So day four, sun, moon, and stars connect to the Ark throne. What did God do on days five and six? He filled the, earth, the sea and the earth, including plants yielding seeds and trees with seed and fruit. And on day six, he made man. So which piece of furniture does that connect to? Well, that would be the table with bread and wine, grain of the earth and fruit of the vine, and man, the 12 loaves, the people of God that it represents. That's a taste of what's going on here. And there's more, and some of it I'm still trying to sort out in my mind. But what I want you to see this morning is this. This physical world that we live in is representative of a greater reality, a deeper reality. This physical world was fashioned to mirror another world, the spiritual world of God's temple in heaven. What you see around you is not all there is. Don't get me wrong. This physical world is important very important. This is not the kind of understanding of the Bible that thinks that this world is just going to go away someday, so it really doesn't matter. It's all going to burn up anyway. No, not at all. Just the opposite, in fact. This world matters because it's a reflection of what's ultimate. We've been given this world as our assignment, our mandate. We're supposed to have dominion, subdue the earth and fill it, be fruitful and multiply, because God is going to unite heaven and earth. This world matters. What's the response to what we've seen? How do the living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne respond? Well, for starters, there's a rotation of worship around the throne. When the text says, day and night they never cease, it's talking about repetition, a pattern, That happens day and night. The living creatures never cease to speak or sing their worship, and whenever they do this, verse 10 says, the 24 elders fall down before the throne. Now, the 24 elders can't be constantly falling down and at the same time sitting on their thrones, like verse 4 says. So the never ceasing is talking about a pattern of repetition that's going on indefinitely, a rotation of worship. Now, Remember, the four living creatures and the 24 elders are like the priests and the Levites. In 1 Chronicles 24, David is setting up with Zadok the priest a rotation of the priests and the Levites. And he divides them into 24 groups. And here's the way he does it. He says there's going to be 24 groups of Levites and priests. There's 24 groups of singers. And then there's 24 groups of gatekeepers or guards, and they have this rotation. It works like this. Each group is on assignment for two weeks. So no matter where you lived in Israel, if you're a Levite, for two weeks out of the year, you come to Jerusalem and you serve in the temple. That's 48 weeks, but we still need to get year-round. So we have an additional four to look for, 24 elders, four living creatures. Let me explain. There's three festivals in Israel: Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, where all of the males in Israel are to come to Jerusalem. That includes the priests and the Levites, so they're there for those three additional weeks. And then there's a second Passover for any who were sick or unable to come. That's the additional week. So Now, 52 weeks, the whole year is covered with this rotation of priests and Levites serving in the temple. 24 groups, a full rotation of service. Why did it get designed that way here on earth? Because that reflects the heavenly reality that we're reading about here. This never ceasing worship in heaven. When we have the 24 elders, we have this complete rotation to carry out the worship. They do it day and night without ceasing. It's telling us that the worship in heaven is constant, this rotation. And we should probably picture it something like this. One living creature at his appointed time comes forward and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And then maybe... Maybe one by one, maybe all at the same time, six of the 24 elders come forward and they fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns down in reverence and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Again, what we're seeing in this vision is the heavenly reality. The priests and Levites on earth are a shadow, a copy of what's going on in heaven. The very fabric of the creation that God has designed is constantly in worship, if it's rightly reflecting what his heavenly counsel is doing in his presence. So what we do on earth is the copy and shadow, the dim reflection of that. But we should learn from it. We should be doing that. Finally, just look at the two songs themselves, very briefly. The first song celebrates God for who he is. He's holy. He's the almighty God, higher than all other beings. And he's above time. He controls time and all the events of history, was and is and is to come. And when the song says, the Lord God, the almighty, that is an in-your-face statement against the Roman rulers. The Roman emperor was described with that phrase. And for Christians who hear this, it's a comfort to know who is ultimately in control. The second song then praises God as the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything we've seen in these visions, every creature is created by God. All things are dependent on him. And the response of the heavenly council, these spirit beings, is to worship And that should be the response of God's people on earth as well. We should learn from the way things are in heaven and seek to make it that way on earth too. That's why Jesus tells us, he says, when you pray, say, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to know what you should be doing on earth? Take a look at what's going on in heaven. And I said at the outset, there were three things I wanted us to see in this passage. I know we've covered a lot of ground here, but I hope these three things have become clear. Number one, the heavenly reality is what's most basic. We have these descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple and all of that, but they're based on this heavenly reality that John is seeing. That's what's really real. It's not an imaginary thing. It's the basis for all the stuff around you that you think of as real. Not that this isn't real, it is, but it's reflecting another reality that comes before it. Secondly, that God is absolutely sovereign over time and history. This whole vision is centered around the throne. Everything revolves around the throne. All of the worship is directed to the throne. God is the one who's absolutely in control and God wants these believers to know that they can trust this God. We need to know that too. As you look around at the world and you see the prices going crazy at the, at the grocery store and at the gas station and you see the, the news and all the stuff that's going on around the world and you say, what is going on? It seems out of control. It's not. God is on his throne. This vision reminds us of that. And so what should we do? The right response is worship. For who God is and for what he's done. In heaven, he's being worshiped. In earth, we want to reflect that reality. There's a sense in which this message this morning is incomplete. Because it's really just setting the stage for the action that happens next week. But next week, we'll see Jesus is the lamb who is slain. He's worshiped in this vision in chapter 4 because of who he is and for being the creator, next week we'll see that that worship happens because by his blood he has ransomed his people. The story continues. We worship him also because he is our redeemer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this vision that we see in Revelation And for what it tells us about you and your design of this world, sometimes it's very easy to just go through life and think that what's right in front of our faces is all there is. Would you use this vision to remind us that there is a greater reality behind the copy and shadow that we serve? We want to understand the way things are in heaven so that we can faithfully live that way here on earth. And I ask that our response this morning of worship would be right and true and pure worship in spirit and in truth for who you are and for what you have done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.